These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Serenity now, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and when you acknowledge that certain cold and calculated people will stop at nothing to accomplish their goals, the level of corruption and deceit we have in the world shouldn't be so surprising. And when campaign contributions, fundraisers, and handshakes aren't enough, you'll find bribery, blackmail, and shakedowns. Because there is a level of the game we just don't usually see, hidden behind the flag-waving patriots and cackling talk show hosts, where organized crime, intelligence networks, billionaire philanthropists, and the world of finance are so tightly interwoven and effective that even those who would carry out any proverbial justice are already under their thumb. It's a sad situation that has eroded confidence in government beyond repair for those who see it and has made it hard to take seriously fellow citizens who don't. But in the internet age, we do have independent journalists doing the dirty work the legacy media has failed to do, and one of those we couldn't do without is the great Whitney Webb. She's been here twice before, taking us through her research that spiraled out from an investigation of the infamous Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, her father Robert Maxwell, and more, but now she's put this research into an impressive two-volume set titled One Nation Under Blackmail that clocks in at almost 500 pages apiece and gives the term deep dive new meaning. You can find a slew of other articles, podcasts, and videos on her website, unlimitedhangout.com as well, but it is great to have her back. The covert crime ring chronicler, justice-seeking journalist, and Epstein Network investigator extraordinaire, Whitney, welcome back. Hey, Greg. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. That's quite an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> I try. I try. Uh, and I do appreciate you coming back. I know the interview requests never stop coming in, I'm sure. But you were kind enough to come here when you didn't have a whole lot to promote besides some free articles you'd written. And now that you do have this really well done two volume set of books published by Trine Day, by the way, for people who remember Chris Milligan being here. And I just wanted to make sure that we could do it again so that we can help make these bad boys bestsellers. Oh, well, thanks. Well, you know, they're going to be available soon in like a ebook and audiobook and stuff like that. And to be honest, you know, book sales are great. I mean, I did put a lot of 
time and effort, blood, sweat, and tears into the book. Um, <laughs> you know, cause it was pretty intense cause I have two young children and I was the only adult in the house uh, <laughs> for a lot of the time this book was going on. So it was pretty intense. But what I care about is that people read it, to be honest, more than my part of the royalties or whatever. Because, I mean, it was a lot of work. There's a lot of detail in here. And, you know, even though we're going to be talking for two hours today, there is so much uh, that we're not going to be able to get into. Because, like you said, it's basically a thousand page book when you're counting citations and stuff like that and source documents and stuff. So it is pretty extensive. But I think it's a really important, I guess, crash course and true government corruption that is going to lead people, hopefully, to have very important and necessary discussions about what's going on in the U.S. and in the world right now. More specifically, what I mean by that is, you know, I'm trying to document extensive government and intelligence crimes, basically showing that organized crime runs the U.S. to a significant degree, and that you can't tell where organized crime ends and intelligence begins anymore, and that it's been that way for some time. So there needs to be a major investigation that has subpoena power and all that stuff. But what do you do when the government isn't capable of investigating itself? And that's the discussion I think, you know, the U.S. really needs to have. Yes, well said. It is quite a catch-22, but the books are great. A serious one-two punch that belongs in the corruption section of any home library. I expect a lot of other people have a corruption section in their library like I do, but it really is great. You probably name over a thousand names in this thing. The indexes are huge and the two volumes are somewhat chronological, but how would you describe them for the people who want to know what stuff is in what volume? Okay. Yeah. So it's two volumes. The bulk of the Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Leslie Wexner materials in volume two. The reason it's two volumes is because in order to really understand the information I'm putting forth in volume two, which, you know, you can read as a standalone book, I, I would, you know, assume, but you're going to be missing a lot of the context. And so what I'm showing in volume one is that context. And basically what I'm trying to do is situate Epstein in history and in this particular network, because it's a network that, you know, enabled and protected Epstein's crimes for a number of years. And that network not only continues to exist after his death, but it precedes his entry into this world by decades. So, you know, it's important to really flesh that out. So basically, the two books together is roughly a hundred year history, which is why, you know, as you mentioned, there are a lot of names in the index, but I'm covering a lot of ground here, at least attempting to. So volume one is basically a, a crash course in organized crime in intelligence and sexual blackmail in the United States and how those elements are woven out most of the well-known political scandals in modern U.S. history. And how it has, you know, basically informed our present today and where Jeffrey Epstein fits into that. There probably will at some point be an unofficial volume three, its own separate book about the contents of chapters 16 and 17, which is dealing with Epstein's relationship with the Clinton White House and also his relationship with Southern Air Transport in the 90s during the same period he was meeting with the Clinton White House. Since publishing the book, my research assistant, Ed Berger, and I have found a lot more information, so it's probably going to have to be its own book at some point. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a, you know, a whole lot of material here. So basically, volume one opens up with a quote from an Iran-Contra whistleblower from the CIA named Bruce Hemings. And, you know, he basically talks about this group 
that Epstein at the time was basically a part of this group. And they were identified in Iran-Contra testimony as the Enterprise. And the Enterprise has obviously changed since the way it is at the 1980s, but the name basically tells you what the core of the group is about. It's a business. Mm -hmm. It's a business based in illegal activity. A lot of these illegal activities in, that have enriched this group and allowed them to accrue so much power are, you know, rackets and activities that were originally used by organized crime in their ascendancy to power in the early 20th century. And by the time they got into bed formally with intelligence, which happened around World War II, you know, things just got <laughs> out of control from there and out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is so much context and material here that it really is just about where a person wants to dive into the story because the corruption it's kind of timeless in a in a great classic american way but to talk about the beginning because i didn't really want to retread a lot of the ground we've covered before so i figured we just bounce around through some of the material that was new to me and there is plenty starting with how this network actually formed with something called operation underworld pretty on the nose code word, but yeah. talk to us a little bit about that. Right. So Operation Underworld took place in world uh, during World War II. It was the Office of Naval Intelligence, but the precursor to the CIA called the Office of Strategic Services lurking somewhere in the background. And of course, behind the OSS, you have this weird intrigue of British intelligence officers and all the stuff who basically, you know, wanted the US to enter the war and things like that. So the Office of Naval Intelligence wanted to gather intelligence from dock workers in New York City. And in order to do that, they had to make an alliance with organized crime, because at that point, organized crime, specifically what is referred to today as the National Crime Syndicate, controlled that union. They actually controlled most unions in New York City, because at that same point in time, they basically controlled the Democratic Party in New York City. Even the mayor at the time, William O'Dwyer, was just up to his neck in organized crime and actually was given an ambassadorship to Mexico by Harry Truman to avoid being prosecuted for his organized crime connections and criminal activity. His top right-hand man actually ended up taking the fall after that ambassadorship took place. But this is all, you know, that's New York at the time Operation Underworld takes place. It's allegedly to prevent German saboteurs from attacking ships at that particular dock. But the concerns about saboteurs were actually a, a talking point from British intelligence and weren't necessarily accurate. So it's basically manufacturing the pretext to make this alliance with organized crime. And, you know, it leads to a very cozy relationship. You end up having several organized criminals who were locked up at that point, deported to places like Italy. You know, this is the Italian mafia we're talking about in that particular case. And a lot of them were instrumental in wartime efforts to land in Sicily or conduct other operations in Italy and what have you. So, you know, this alliance very quickly expanded beyond New York's docks. And, you know, for anyone that's a student of CIA covert operations in the periods after the CIA was formed in the late 40s, it becomes pretty apparent, especially if you're looking at things like the JFK assassination or the efforts to overthrow Castro or the Bay of Pigs and all of this stuff, you have a lot of organized crime elements in there, specifically on CIA assassination teams and things like that in the 50s and the 60s. And these type of alliances really, you know, expand in a considerable way 
from Operation Underworld, but it seems like that formal alliance started there when it comes to intelligence. Now, if you look at the FBI, for example, as an intelligence agency, it technically has always more or less been a domestic intelligence agency. It is the top law enforcement, I guess, body in the country, more or less. But at this point, it had already been compromised through the sexual blackmail of its first director, who was director until, I guess, like the 70s or so, J. Edgar Hoover, was sexually blackmailed by organized crime. And that's allegedly the reason why he never went after organized crime, why he was FBI director. And he was actually very much in bed with people who were intimately linked up with organized crime, who I detail in the book, people like Louis Rosensteel and Roy Cohn. So J. Edgar Hoover, after he was blackmailed himself, ended up being involved in some sexual blackmail operations that were happening domestically, specifically one that involved both Conan and Rosenstiel and was allegedly linked to the McCarthy Red Scare era and all of that, in which Roy Cohn was publicly very involved as well. So there was a lot of, you know, intrigue there <laughs> way, way, way back. And these types of tactics have really continued through the years. So what I'm trying to show in volume one is the continuity of these types of these patterns of behavior, sexual blackmail being a major one, and how this particular network has you know, engage in that activity over the years and how really a lot of the key players that I'm highlighting in the book end up, or, you know, they're ultimately interconnected. And that includes a continuation up until we get to Jeffrey Epstein. Right on. Yeah, you definitely make a pretty ironclad case for this continuation of organized crime and government and this cozy relationship. I heard you say in another interview that because of this intertwining that sprawled out of uh, Operation Underworld, Pretty much any mob arrest after the 1940s and 50s was just eliminating competition. And yeah. that is a pretty scary thought because I think a lot of us know there's corruption, but think, well, sometimes justice is served just in the name of justice. But to think there's always this ulterior motive and that they have even more carte blanche to act with impunity without competition. When you sit with that, it's kind of intense. Yeah, well, I mean... I think that's definitely true. Look, for example, at recent cases against some of the biggest bank in the world for money laundering for drug cartels like HSBC. Nothing happened to them. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And when there's arrests for things like that, for drug trafficking, for sex trafficking, whatever, almost always it's small fish. Yeah, for sure. Or people who are competing with the people that are on the top. At this point, I would say that it's intelligence that basically dominates drug trafficking, arms trafficking, the illegal type stuff today. And it's really been that way for some time because, you know, these agencies view that type of illicit revenue as essential to financing their operations, specifically operations they don't want to have to ask congressional approval for. And that's how things like Iran-Contra started. Iran-Contra started basically because Congress said, we're going to allow you to provide humanitarian assistance, but not lethal assistance to the Contras in Nicaragua. And Bill Casey was like, fuck that. I'm going to find a way to, to make this work without having to ask you for permission. And that's essentially what Iran-Contra allegedly what sort of led to it. But you could really argue that that particular network around Casey was interested in doing this type of stuff well before. Great points. And not that it's hard for the CIA to set up their own networks and fronts, but it's even easier if you're in bed with the criminal underworld who has developed these trafficking processes and systems. 
And then you just say, well, we're going to arrest a guy here, knock off a guy there, study how they do things, and just slowly infiltrate and take over the whole game. And knowing the Operation Underworld context does add a lot of clarity to what the CIA seems to have become, just gangsters essentially. But in terms of Epstein and his inner circle, I did learn a lot more about Leslie Wexner and Victoria's Secret's infrastructure and this pipeline of models. And there are definitely some details there that I'd like the audience to hear, but you have said that you think the establishment is fairly content with the spotlight being on the sex trafficking stuff because it overshadows Epstein's financial crimes. Yeah. So let's go where they don't want us, and what can you tell people about those financial crimes that they haven't heard nearly as much about? Okay, so Jeffrey Epstein is a financial criminal just as much as he was a sex criminal. And so what you're referring to is the fact that mainstream media, when they talk about Jeffrey Epstein, they only talk about his sex crimes from 2000 to roughly 2006, and that's it. And pretty much everything else is off limits. I mean, maybe they'll give a little bit of lip service to the relationship that Jeffrey Epstein had some sort of relationship with Bill Clinton and Bill Gates, but they won't really get into the meat and potatoes of what that relationship is. Because if they did, it would basically mean the end of the Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation, which Jeffrey Epstein appeared to have either set up or played a major role in, depending on which foundation you're talking about. Mm. But in the case of both Clinton and Gates, for example, Epstein's relationship with them actually goes back to the 1990s, contrary to mainstream media narratives. And the reason they won't get into what Epstein was doing in the 90s or the 1980s is because it was, by and large, you know, financial crimes. Maybe with some dabbling in sex trafficking at that point and sex blackmail. But really, by the time you get into the 2000s is when that starts to take over. And that's why the focus is not on Epstein before then. I mean, this is a guy that was born in like the 60s. And so to ignore all of the previous decades of his career is very significant. And also to ignore the stuff that happened after his first arrest, like his apparent role in the collapse of Bear Stearns, which had a role in the 2008 financial crisis, unexplored by mainstream media. His role in advising Elon Musk companies later on mm. and his relationship with Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, among other things, you know, all of this is completely unexplored by mainstream media. And I don't really think that's a coincidence. So talking about financial crimes, it's important to look at, I guess, an overview of the history of Epstein. And I'll just try and keep it pretty brief. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, if you want all the minute details of it, you can read my books. So most people are familiar with the fact that Jeffrey Epstein was a math teacher at the Dalton School in New York right. in the late 70s, having been hired to that position by William Barr's father, Donald Barr, at a time when William Barr was already working for the CIA. So after that, he gets hired at Bear Stearns by Alan Greenberg, who's a top guy at Bear Stearns. And just a couple of years later, after bringing Epstein into the bank, becomes the top guy at Bear Stearns. During this period of time, where Epstein is at Bear Stearns, he has a very meteoric rise and basically starts advising their top clients about esoteric markets is the term, and also tax issues. He basically is their top tax evasion expert, it seems like, for their wealthiest clients. Hmm. It's also worth noting that during this period of time, the top legal counsel to Bear Stearns is Bill Casey who in 1981, January 1981, becomes director of the CIA. Around the same time that Casey becomes director of the CIA, 
There is an SEC investigation into insider trading involving Edgar Bronfman. I talk about the Bronfmans a lot in the book, in both volumes one and volumes two. But basically, it seems like Edgar Bronfman was one of these wealthy clients that Epstein was advising. The SEC was tipped off that Epstein had information about the insider trading. And basically, right after, I can't remember if it's right after, right before interviewing with the SEC, I think it's after, he leaves Bear Stearns. I think, and I argue in the book, that Epstein pretty much had to go to protect the big kahuna at Bear Stearns. That was his close mentor, Alan Greenberg, who's CEO of Bear Stearns at the time. Because if Epstein was caught doing stuff with the top clientele, it probably would have led to the top or caused major headaches for the bank. And I also think it's very interesting that you have this Bill Casey legal relationship because this happens just a month or two after Casey leaves his role as Bear Stearns' top legal counsel. And he is CIA director, and obviously he would have entrusted his legal clients to someone he trusted. And it's possible even that that person, whoever it was, had consulted Casey about that. Because by the time that Epstein leaves Bear Stearns, he starts to orbit around people that are involved in the genesis of Iran-Contra, which, of course, Bill Casey is basically setting up. One of these people is Adnan Khashoggi. And at the same time, Jeffrey Epstein takes on Adnan Khashoggi as a client. Two other people take on Adnan Khashoggi as a client. One of these people is Roy Cohn, who's very intimately involved with these networks, particularly the organized crime side of things, and a sexual blackmailer. The other person is Robert Keith Gray. Robert Keith Gray and Roy Cohn worked very closely with Bill Casey in Reagan's 1980 campaign. So it's just interesting to see this mix of characters around someone like Adnan Khashoggi at the time that Adnan Khashoggi is putting into motion what later becomes known as Iran-Contra which is, you know, illegal arms trafficking and illegal drug trafficking and paramilitary training, arming, you know, paramilitaries around the world, not just in Nicaragua, covertly. That's essentially what Iran-Contra is more or less a a misnomer for. Uh, Going back a second, Robert Keith Gray is also a sex blackmailer, very tied to intelligence in this particular network we're talking about that involves a mix of CIA operatives, OSS veterans, organized crime people, people who straddle both of those worlds, and also Israeli intelligence and UK intelligence to an extent as well. Mm. So, (laughs) sorry, this is taking longer than I had thought. So, um, you know, he's in this world with Adnan Khashoggi. And during this time, Epstein describes what he's doing to friends as a financial bounty hunter. He's saying that he is hiding away looted funds and also finding looted funds all for powerful people. Okay, so if he's around Adnan Khashoggi at this time, engaging in that type of activity and other powerful people doing that type of work, he obviously has a very intimate understanding of the offshore banking system and where people would hide massive amounts of money they have looted from the powerful or looted from other places they want to hide away. It's most likely because of the Adnan Khashoggi connection. Adnan Khashoggi's main bank during this period is BCCI. Stephen Hoffenberg, who died recently, uh, confirmed to a journalist that I have a professional relation with that he, that Epstein did have a relationship with, with BCCI. Hmm. So that's pretty significant. BCCI, for people that don't know, is the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, but it was basically in a private intelligence apparatus masquerading as a bank. It was involved in 
arms trafficking, money laundering, uh, you know, pretty much everything we've been talking about here. All the hits. On an industrial scale. It was nominally set up by, you know, people tied to Pakistani intelligence, but there's definitely CIA fingerprints all over the origins of BCCI as well. And, you know, it's really used by a transnational mafia of organized crime intelligence linked people before its collapse in 1991. And it seems like a lot of people that made use of BCCI made subsequent financial networks as BCCI was collapsing in the early 90s that basically were meant to replace BCCI, which is, you know, I'll be getting into that in, you know, the book I write after this, because I mean, it's, there's a lot of history to dig up here. So, you know, I can only do so much at a time. But after that financial bounty hunter period, where by his own admission, Epstein is helping, at least on some occasions, hide looted money for powerful people. He's uh, an accessory to financial crimes. He teams up not only with Leslie Wexner in this period, we can get into how that happens, but basically it happens around the time that Leslie Wexner's tax attorney is shot in the face because of major tax issues right before he's about to testify to the IRS. And then Epstein comes in to fix all the tax issues. What do you know? Uh. But aside from that, he also teams up with Stephen Hoffenberg around the same period. And with Stephen Hoffenberg constructs what is one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in U.S. history, Towers Financial. Instead of being held accountable for that crime, Stephen Hoffenberg takes the entire fall for that crime and Epstein's name is dropped from the case. The same time he's dropped from the case, Epstein starts going around some of the most controversial fundraisers in the history of the Clinton crime family. The first formal association he has really with the White House, well, the first meeting is with Robert Rubin, but we'll leave that out for a second. But the other two meetings in 1993 are around this donor reception and this fundraiser supposedly for the White House Historical Society. But it's very suspect. You have people intimately involved in BCCI, involved in offshore banking, organized crime companies in the Bahamas, all sorts of crazy stuff at this supposed fundraiser. Epstein's there as well. And it makes an appearance in Vince Foster's suicide note, quote unquote, suicide note, which is very alarming to see that there. And I explain why it is in the book and all the other intrigue around Vince Foster's death, which, you know, is officially called a suicide, but there is ample evidence to doubt that was the case. So that's essentially Epstein's first formal involvement with the Clinton family. And then he pops up again in what is remembered as Chinagate, sometimes remembered as the campaign finance scandal of 1996. Epstein's involved in that as well, because the person he's meeting most frequently with the White House in this period is a man named Mark Middleton, Mm -hmm. who also died under very suspicious circumstances relatively recently. And Mark Middleton was at the center of this particular scandal in 1996. And so scandalous it was that it was George W. Bush, not the Clintons, that stepped in to hide documents from Congress about Mark Middleton a couple weeks before 9-11 in 2001. So you're having the Bush family step in to protect someone who was nominally a aide to who was then a senior advisor to the president of the previous administration. Blocking those documents from going to Congress. So it's big enough that the Bush family is covering for the Clinton family. And, you know, the types of stuff the Bush and Clintons collaborate with and together, you know, that's stuff like Mena, Arkansas and, you know, that type of I mean, I'm assuming your audience is familiar enough with these types of um terms to not have to define exactly what I mean by that. (laughs) Um, But basically, you know, Iran-Contra was something that involved the Clinton family, involved the Bush family, involved U.S. intelligence, involved Israeli intelligence, and involved a lot of 
very powerful actors that involved organized crime. It involved drug cartels. And it's not just Iran-Contra. You have Iran-Contra, BCCI, and the Promise Software scandal essentially being the same giant scandal taking place at the same time, right? Yeah. And so a lot of the actors in those worlds, you know, pop up in the 90s. But basically, you know, that's Epstein's trajectory. And that's before the sex crimes, right? Mm -hmm. And around the same time, he's, you know, in the part we're allowed to talk about, he's publicly going around with Bill Clinton after Bill Clinton leaves office. And he's setting up the Clinton Foundation with Bill Clinton and the Clinton Health Access Initiative. He's designing Bill Clinton's quote unquote philanthropic HIV AIDS program that later collaborates massively with the Gates Foundation. And he's also involved in the Gates Foundation before 2011, like mainstream media likes to claim. I mean, there's UK articles in their mainstream media from 2001 saying Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates had business links that preceded 2001 and that Jeffrey Epstein made most of his money with Leslie Wexner, Donald Trump, and Bill Gates. <laughs> wow. And mainstream media won't touch it. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, it's 2011 when they first met. <laughs> I mean, it's a joke. It is. And all, another joke is that Epstein is often presented as like a buffoon, that he talked a strong game about the financial stuff, but that anybody who spent time with him could tell he was bullshitting and that that was all a cover story. I think that might be mainly from uh, one of the Weinstein brothers who talks about meeting him and he kind of gave that impression. Yeah, Eric but Weinstein, who's employed by Peter Thiel, who created Palantir with the exact people my book is about yeah uh -oh. so uh -oh. <laughs> yeah so well, i don't really know if i trust eric weinstein because eric weinstein before he was famous for like i don't know going on podcasts and stuff and i don't know wasn't it his brother that was famous first brett weinstein because of some university issue at the university he was teaching at yeah, some woke student uprising type of thing. Yeah, so Eric Weinstein was involved in finance stuff. I think he was involved with, I can't remember exactly what it is now, but it's some sort of financial entity. He was a finance guy. So why was he going to meet with Epstein? And what was it, like 2004, 2002, somewhere in that ballpark? Oh, dicey, dicey. He was going to talk about finances. Right. And from what I understand, if you listen to Eric Weinstein talk about Epstein, he doesn't really, he leaves out a lot. Like he doesn't, he just says, I knew this guy was an op and all this stuff, but he doesn't really talk about why he was going to meet Epstein, what they talked about. He just, yeah. I don't really trust the guy, mainly because if you're working for Peter Thiel, I don't trust you at all. <laughs> because Palantir is a CIA front company and it's one of the most dangerous CIA front companies in existence. And it's basically the successor to uh, the weaponized stolen version of promise that i mentioned earlier right and well the link between that is a company created by christine maxwell and this guy at the cia who later becomes the point man at the cia for the creation of palantir with peter thiel and in the mix there are iran contra criminals like john poindexter you have richard pearl one of the arc neocons who has a very huge conflict of interest when it comes to selling out u.s national security to israel like repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly over his career also in the mix with peter thiel and peter thiel co-invest with epstein and ehud barak and a very orwellian company that's taking over all the 911 call systems in the u.s why can't eric weinstein talk about that oh, <laughs> oh man i love it he blocked me on twitter i mean you can guess why i can guess why um Man, but hey, let the truth be known. And it does seem pretty clear that Epstein was very talented with financial fuckery and structuring things advantageously for individuals. And 
it's really eye-opening that he was so instrumental in setting up the Clinton Foundation, knowing how much influence they have, that he created the kind of African AIDS program that both the Clinton Foundation and Gates Foundation contributed to. And then, you know, Bill Gates, he had that home IT engineer, got caught with a giant collection of yeah. child videotapes that are mm -hmm. pretty unsavory. And uh, it was child rape videos. Yeah. There you go. Well, let's mm -hmm. call a spade a spade. And Mark Middleton, I, that was a big thread that I learned about in the book. I hadn't really heard the name mentioned, but he was definitely, I guess, involved in 15 of the 17 visits of Epstein's to the White House when Clinton was president. And he is the guy who, as you say, he was recently found dead. He was found hanging from an electrical cord with a shotgun blast to the chest, I believe. Yeah, he apparently hung himself and shot himself in the chest with a shotgun at the same time on an NGO tied to the Clinton Foundation. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> right. As you do. Yeah. As you do. That was sarcasm and for people listening. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so last time we did talk a good amount about the Maxwell sisters and the Promise Software scandal and just how they seem to also be now a new generation involved in big tech and government software and the CTI League, which, you know, if you look up the CTI League, they say their mission is defending and neutralizing cybersecurity threats and vulnerabilities to the life-saving sectors. Well, that sounds like eliminating competition once again. You want to be the only one. You want to have the monopoly on cybersecurity and, you know, violations of it. But you also mentioned Elon Musk, and he does get a couple of name drops in the book. But in terms of Epstein and tech, another sector that I don't hear about nearly as much as the sex trafficking stuff this is a great paragraph, and it hits on a lot of this. You write, in 2019, Epstein claimed to be advising Tesla and Elon Musk, who had been previously photographed with Epstein's alleged madam, Ghislaine Maxwell. Epstein had also attended a dinner hosted by LinkedIn's Reid Hoffman, where Musk had allegedly introduced Epstein to Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook Meta, Google's Sergey Brin is known to have attended a dinner hosted by Epstein at his New York residence, where Donald Trump was also in attendance. In addition, Ghislaine Maxwell was reportedly close to Amazon's Jeff Bezos, who she referred to as her pal and who invited Maxwell to exclusive events he hosted. Several of these companies whose founders had some Epstein-Maxwell connection include Google, Microsoft, SpaceX, and Amazon are also major contractors to the U.S. government, the military, and or intelligence community. I mean, that is scary because that is like everybody on the bingo card. You know, everybody that you could capture is captured in that paragraph. I mean, at least mentioned as touching up against this network. I mean, that's all of tech. Yeah. Well, I mentioned I'm doing a third book at some point it's going to completely intersect with the genesis of what is today referred to as Silicon Valley. A lot of the crazy stuff going on in the nineties, specifically with this network, the enterprise, they basically engaged in wholesale tech transfer to the U S's ostensible adversaries in a huge way. And this intimately involves Silicon Valley. You see whispers of this with what Robert Maxwell was doing before he died in a program called Neva, where he, it was Soviet intelligence. They had all these people in Silicon Valley then at the time that were basically sending top U.S. tech over there. And then this NAVA program, all these umbrella companies that Maxwell controlled in Bulgaria and other states would repackage it and resell it. And 
I mean, there's people all over this. I mean, I, it's going to take me time to flesh it out. Yeah, but I mean, you have the top people, the top people at IBM, a top company of this era called Silicon Graphics that later gets, I forget who, I think it gets sold to HP. But all of these guys, including with Epstein, you know, are all all over this stuff in a really weird way. And it, I mean, I don't want to get too into it now because I hope they don't like <laughs> scrub everything on it before I can write the book about it now that I've like mentioned what's to be looked at. But I mean, there's hints of this already in the book, even though I didn't get to get into absolutely everything about it. But there's obviously a lot more to be done there. But if you look at just something like the Edge Foundation. Epstein basically made that his personal front in 1999 until I think, oh, I forget the year, but several, you know, more than a decade later. And he's basically funding it entirely. Almost all of their donations come from him in some years. He's the only donor. And it's hosting these events called the Billionaire's Dinner. And all the top people at Silicon Valley are there every year. Hmm. Not to say that everyone involved with Edge, Eric Weinstein was involved with Edge, by the way, but not to say that everyone <laughs> involved in Edge is necessarily connected to Epstein or a PETA or any of that stuff. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is Epstein used it as an influence operation. And that's probably how he got really close to a lot of prominent people in big tech and a lot of prominent people in the sciences, mm. because that was a big focus. And that's also a big focus that's been unexplored by mainstream media. The narrative you brought up earlier that Epstein was just incompetent and was a good talker. Sure. He was probably charismatic, but if he was so charismatic, he wouldn't have needed Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell was the charisma. And it's very evident that Epstein was basically taking over for Robert Maxwell in a lot of ways when it came to this network in terms of the types of activities he was engaging in. And to write it all off as incompetence, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I air out in the book that <laughs> has been, I mean, it's open source. It's not hard to find if you look for it, but mainstream media won't touch it mm -hmm. about Epstein at all. Talking again about the Clinton White House stuff, I mean, mainstream media has maintained from the beginning that Epstein and Clinton didn't have a relationship or didn't know each other at all until Clinton left office. Last December, the Daily Mail in the UK publishes White House visitor logs that show what people thought was five visits to the White House by Epstein in the Clinton era it was actually 17. And then showed picture of, of Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell shaking Bill Clinton's hand in 1993 and mainstream media in the US does not cover it at all. Hmm. Why is that? Right. <laughs> they won't touch it. I mean, they have to keep it so limited because Epstein is one of those threads that if you pull on, a lot of other stuff gets aired out that they don't want to be aired out. It's true. Particularly in today's day and age. I mean, if you're looking at what's going on in the world right now, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation plays a very central role to a lot of stuff that's going on right now. And so does, well, now the Clinton Foundation's basically back with the Clinton Global Initiative relaunching for the first time since Hillary Clinton's failed presidential campaign and is pushing really hard for the implementation of the SDGs and also for Wall Street banks to combine with the IMF and the World Bank. Won't that be fun? Yes. So, you know, these people are still very much around. And so I think we do ourselves an injustice if we're just focusing on some of the sex crimes of Epstein. As I note in the book, there's actually two parallel sex trafficking operations going on at the same time. And they're very different. And we are only talking about one of them in the mainstream narrative. Right, right. And the other one, let's just talk about it because it is kind of interesting. I've heard you mention this before. It's more of the lure that these women can be helped in their careers. And then they're kind of married off to people within the network. Yeah, yeah. So 
that lure you're mentioning, so for both operations, the same lure was used. Promises of help, promises of modeling with Victoria's Secret and all this type of stuff. But some of the people that were lured in were chosen for what you just mentioned. They were educated, like their education was paid for by Epstein or Epstein hired them to some highly paid position they they may not have deserved or, you know, some sort of thing like that. And then they, they do engage in, in the case of someone like Melanie Walker, for example, they do engage in apparent sex blackmail activities with people like Prince Andrew, and then they end up becoming the girlfriends or wives of the elite. And those women have a very different opinion of Epstein than the victims that we're all familiar with. Mm. They love them even now. <laughs> and it's very bizarre to read what, I mean, that's just like night and day. They really feel like Epstein helped them and they think he's just the greatest man on, on the planet. Mm-hmm. One example would be Francis Hardeen. A lot of these women actually accompanied Epstein on his White House visits to the Clinton White House, oddly enough. But I mean, Frances Hardeen is one of them. She's uh, born in South Africa. She was married off to this oil trader that's definitely a part of this network called John Doyce, who was also had a very big presence in Bermuda, notably where one of Epstein's mentors, Douglas Lease, had a major business presence as well. And Frances Hardeen, when she was asked about Epstein, I guess, earlier this year, just fawned over him. I mean, the statement's nuts. I mean, I reproduce it in full in the book. It's just totally mental. When you consider what everything that's been known and covered in the mainstream media, she's still like, I I love the guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's bar. So there's several women like this and they've played key roles in the operation, but they're in a different tier. It's like an elite tier. And then you have the girls that were, you know, exploited and abused and, and trashed basically on the other side, which is, you know, what everyone knows about, but you have this development of basically sophisticated intelligence assets that are all these very attractive women that are, you know, basically married off to the powerful. It's bizarre to say the least, but these women don't get talked about in the mainstream media at all. And it's because they're influential and they're married to powerful people, very powerful people. Right. Right. Man, there's just so many different avenues to go down, but I wanted to step back to kind of the sustainable development goals stuff and tech and by extension energy which of course you've said is bill gates next big grift and that is where things are going and you are working on a series now for the website about the un sustainable development goals and in it you say sdgs are policies cloaked in the language of utopia that in practice will only benefit the economic elite and entrench their power well help us understand their real motivation here, how they're going to profit from these goals. Okay, so if you read the book, what you're going to realize is that there have been a series of insane financial crimes perpetrated against the American public over and over again. And these are basically huge wealth transfers to the elite, right? COVID, the COVID economic response and the lockdowns and all of that is the most recent one. But I mean, this happened in 2008. It happened in 2001 in different parts of the world. It happened throughout the 1990s. And then in the 1980s, this particular network of intelligence and organized crime stole $6 billion in 1980s money from the savings and loans industry and used that money to basically take over corporate America. So at some point, they can't loot anymore. Obviously, looting is unsustainable at this scale over time. So the financial system, because of that, I mean, these are people that involve some of the biggest banks in the world, right? There's a lot of 
very powerful financial elites involved in this, right? They can't keep doing this forever. The economy is going to collapse and people are going to be angry. They want to avoid what happened in 2008. In 2008, you have people like Henry Paulson saying to Congress, bail out the banks or we're going to declare martial law and basically make a dictatorship. You know, why? So people don't demand that the bankers are held accountable. I mean, Henry Paulson is like a top, was before he was Secretary of the Treasury, a top Goldman Sachs guy, right? So, you know, they don't want to deal with that again. So we're seeing this major effort to now move to a new economic system based around the central bank digital currency and programmable money. Yes. And in order to basically move to this financial system, people have to be sold a narrative. They have to be sold something, you know, about what this new system is going to be and that it's going to be better. And they are selling it as sustainable development. And as I know in the series with Ian Davis, who's my co-author on it, who's really great. And I would encourage you to check out at iandavis.com. That's Ian spelled the British way. So I-A-I-N. We basically point out the, well, we've only really covered two. There's 17 sustainable development goals. And if you've heard the term Agenda 2030 thrown around, they're the same thing. It's the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And the core of that are the 17 sustainable development goals. So the first piece we're talking about, we're basically talking about SDG 17, which is partnership for the goals or strengthening the implementation of the goals through, I forget exactly what it is, something like strengthening the global partnership, which is a global public-private partnership. It's a stakeholder capitalist model, which if you're familiar with the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and all of that, You'll probably know what that means, but it's basically, you know, more or less, it's a merging of the public and private sectors. It's fascism, roughly speaking. Yeah. So that's really what's at the core of the SGDs. It's that stakeholder capitalism taking over the world. They're selling it as sustainable development because people, most people think of sustainable development in particular terms, and those are different than the way the UN and, and the people running the show here think of it. Basically, the UN is using sustainability and sustainable as synonyms for transformative and transformation. They are not the same thing. The whole point of the SDGs is to transform our world. That's what they say. And it's not the same as sustainable development as what they think. Basically, what they say is if we don't implement the SGDs, things down the line, theoretically per them, will be so bad that we can ignore all this other stuff and we have to implement the stuff as laid out by this global public-private partnership right now because it's so urgent. You don't have time to think about it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's really so much to get into when we're talking about this. But like I said earlier, I mentioned this effort to sort of merge Wall Street with the IMF and the World Bank. That's coming technically from the UN because one of the bodies implementing all of these SGDs, you have GFANS the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. It's co-chaired by Mark Carney, a central banker, and Michael Bloomberg, a oligarch of the United States, who, I mean, if you look into his history, there's no way you can think this guy is like a good guy. Yeah, but trust him now, they say. So the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero basically wants to turn the IMF and World Bank, no longer have it be a financial weapon of U.S. empire, which U.S. military documents say they are, by the way. 
they want it to be the financial weapon of the members of G fans, which includes organizations like BlackRock, HSBC, Bank of America. I mean, the biggest banks in the world, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be their financial weapon. And it's going to be used basically following the same debt slavery model to have countries implement the SDG. So SDG 17 says that this global partnership needs to establish macroeconomic stability as a prerequisite to all the other SDGs, which, by the way, most people think the SDGs are about climate change. Only one of them deals with climate. There's 17 of them. Only one deals with climate. Yeah. Mm. It's about transforming every part of our lives from the most intimate to the most distant. In terms of most intimate, I mean, they want to control family planning and stuff like that. I mean, very intimate decisions being given to this top-down control system. But when you're going back to G fans and SDG 17, this macroeconomic stability stuff, the way the UN even defines it, it's not what most people think macroeconomic stability is. I mean, just like how they've redefined sustainable development, they've redefined macroeconomic stability. You know, before it used to mean like a good economic growth at maximum employment, low inflation. No, 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 no. That's not what it means to the UN anymore when they say it. What they mean is having enough what they call fiscal space to implement the SDGs. And they don't, they don't even have a firm definition for what fiscal space is. They basically say it's the sustainable debt load basically necessary to implement the SDGs. So it's the space that you have to make in your budget to implement the SDGs. But it's for most countries, it's going to be debt. It's going to be taking on more debt. Right. And even the World Bank has admitted, basically, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but it's you're welcome to look at my article. They say debt is a critical form of financing for the sustainable development goals. They are going to entrap, you know, developing nations particularly in debt to make them implement the SDGs, whether they want to or not, because they're saying it's a global imperative. So a lot of these countries that are in the UN or that have signed on to Agenda 2030 or were signed on by a previous government, they're going to have to implement it. And they're going to have to take on loads of debt which means cutting other services, austerity for everything else. And here comes the global transformation. And, you know, it's bankers running the show. It's bankers. That's yeah. who's behind this. Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg are the people that you picked for their climate envoys, basically. I forget their exact titles, but Michael Bloomberg, I think, is something like the UN envoy for climate ambition and solutions. And I think Mark Carney is something it's about like climate financing. Or something like that. These are the people they've picked to run the show. Right. By the way, what I mentioned earlier about HSBC and getting caught money laundering for drug cartels, one of the guys that covered that up was Mark Carney. Now he's in charge. But trust him, he cares about the planet. <laughs> so does Mike Bloomberg. They care about the planet. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's just, it's a joke. It's a sick joke. And no one's really looking behind the curtain here because sustainable development sounds nice and all the little like phrase descriptors of each SDG sound nice and things like we can get behind, right? Like no poverty, no hunger, health care for everyone, protect the environment, you know, okay, so most people aren't going to be against that stuff. But what people don't realize is that behind each SDG, there's already a mechanism or an entity behind that, a public-private partnership in most cases, that's already deciding how to implement that or is already implementing it, depending on, on the SDG you're talking about. I'm doing a piece right now for the series that's not up yet, but it's on the supposed SDG 14, which is supposedly about the ocean conservation. 
This, of course, was actually the SDG that Ghislaine Maxwell attempted to attach herself to through Terramar. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> so, basically, what's going on here is it's the financialization of the oceans. It's a giant land grab. And a lot of the stuff that they're doing in terms of what I mentioned earlier about debt financing for all of this, the way to pay back debt when these countries are drowning in debt and can't pay it back, it's already there. It's the age-old debt for land swap, but they've renamed it debt for climate swap or debt for conservation swap. And the Nature Conservancy, which I mentioned Henry Paulson a second ago, he was chairman of the board of that for several years. I guess only recently he's moved on, but that's the type of people that run the Nature Conservancy. They did a pilot program with the government of Belize for a debt for conservation swap for the ocean. And it turns out there's all these new financial products that the UN, these UN-backed entities are pitching as a way to implement SDG 14. And it's just like a new casino for big banks and insurance companies. And what it's going to do is it's going to end small-scale subsistence fishing in the third world which is a major form of food for many coastal communities in the developing world. I mean, it's just, it's egregious. And basically, you know, if they can't finance their debt for the other SDGs, they're going to have to do a debt for land swap or a debt for conservation swap, Mm. where someone else becomes owner of that land and becomes the supposed steward to conserve it. And this network at the same time have developed something called natural asset corporations which are lying in wait to manage these resources where they're financializing the natural world and charging you for its services. And they become owners of everything. So as an example, you know, I live in Chile in South America. I live near the Andes. So, you know, maybe some mining companies here and there own like mineral rights to certain parts of the Andes, but you can't sell the Andes. Mm-hmm. But natural asset corporations, now that they're here, they can own the Andes and they can license it to you. And if you want to build a strip mine in the Andes, even though it's the natural asset corporation is there to conserve and manage it, you just have to negotiate the license with the corporation and you can do whatever you want as long as you offset it somehow and negotiate it with the company. And so it's a giant way to enable business as usual, but create an insane new economy that is going to allow you know, the central banks and the big banks to go on forever in this crazy casino economy they've built, while the rest of us are basically living in a neo-feudal reality that is enforced by technology so we can never again challenge our servitude. That's what the SDGs are about in a nutshell. Man, what a great summary. You really crushed all these little notes I had here. Yeah, Ghislaine Maxwell being involved in the nonprofit Terramar, which was related to trying to save the oceans. I mean, that was a preview of a little bit of this stuff. And the natural asset companies just opening up this new market that is the natural world. And your section on green traps is really great. Listeners might remember, they'd have to go way back in the archive, but I interviewed John Perkins once who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And this is like, the Economic Hitman Playbook 2.0. The IMF makes these countries take loans they can't repay. And then they're like, well, what can you give us? And it used to be like a vote on the UN or something, according to John Perkins, or opening up resources, really. It was that too. Like, let us control your water systems or let us put in some oil fields over here. But now it is like 
a land grab, as you say. And yeah, it's so wild. But the difference now, right, is what they're trying to do is instead of the U.S. being the top guy at the IMF, right, or U.S. Empire, the Anglo-American Empire, whatever, being the top guy at the IMF and basically wielding it as literally what the U.S. military admits in leaked documents is a, a weapon of unconventional warfare, a financial weapon. Wall Street, the banks, you can argue, control that empire, yeah? So they're taking the middleman out. Now they're going to have direct control if GFANS gets their way, and it seems like they're going to. I mean, at the Clinton Global Initiative recently, you had Larry Fink of BlackRock say, if we want to get serious about transforming the world, we have to reimagine the charter of the World Bank and the IMF. I mean, these guys are serious, and they're going to do it, and it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster because basically the developing world is where a lot of the mineral resources these guys need for their electric vehicles and all that stuff are the lithium, the cobalt, right? That's where I live, you oh. know, and that's also in Africa to a significant degree. And they're going to turn this whole thing into a giant strip mine. They've already said actually a lot of the same people promoting the SDGs and climate change, people like Bill Gates, for example, they have a, um, a company called Cobalt Metals, K-O Bold Metals. And they basically say we need all the deposits of cobalt and lithium on the planet to have the electrical vehicle revolution. So they're using AI imaging, like geosatellite imaging or whatever. Use AI to determine where all those deposits are and take it. So green, right? So green. Yeah. Well, it's not green if you live close to a mine. Mines literally destroy the water they destroy the land i mean you can't do anything with land i mean as i understand it a mine in canada i saw in forget where the other day but it was a picture of like an area in canada that was strip mined and they're like you can't use it for anything they use it to test lunar rovers because it's basically like the moon nothing can live there anymore and they're dressing up this agenda as saving the planet it's a total inversion of what it's really going to do Yeah. And consumers are really bad at seeing all the steps in the chain. They just get a pat on the head for having an electric car and they're like, well, it's not oil. And it's like, yeah, you really have no idea the the damage that's done to get you that car. And then also the fact that most of our electricity is from coal anyway. And then these batteries end up in landfills and they're they're difficult to deal with. They're not recyclable. And, you know, some of the minerals, like most of the cobalt mines in the world use child labor. Yeah, as with the cell phone yeah. supplies. Mm-hmm. Man, it's really rough. And so I know you got to get out of here soon. Before we start really wrapping up, I just also wanted to ask you about Kevin Spacey. Now, he doesn't come up in the book, but there is that picture of him and Ghislaine sitting on the Queen's throne and laughing. He he does come up in the book. Oh, I he talk does. about that trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, tell us what you know about Spacey, just because he seems to have more connections than your average actor who gets in hot water. All of his accusers ended up dead and he was never prosecuted. Yeah, I didn't get into Kevin Spacey's subsequent. I, I mentioned it briefly, like a couple sentences about how he's been accused on multiple years. I didn't mention that many of his accusers have died under suspicious circumstances. But basically... It's all part of this trip to Africa where Clinton and Epstein are basically setting up the Clinton Health Access Initiative and the Clinton Foundation going on this Africa tour. And Kevin Spacey's there and Chris Tucker's there, right? Those are the the celebrities on the plane. And then after 
I believe that trip ended in the UK and that's when Prince Andrew, who wasn't on the flights, but he, you know, obviously in, involved with these people and he arranged for them to visit the palace. And that's when I heard that picture was taken. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe he learned some dirt on that trip, but it seems like he went to the network and was like, look, you let me go down for this shit. And you know, it's not going to be clean for you either. And they cleaned up his mess. His mess was certainly cleaned up. And he put out those weird threatening videos around Christmas and character of Frank Underwood. Weird shit. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't really follow that. But I mean, a lot of people, especially when they become powerful or they become celebrities, a lot of weird stuff starts to take place. And the ones that are a little more nefarious, I guess you could say, start to realize that they can get away with a lot if they're in with the right people, you know? Right. <laughs> well, it's a tangled web and you do a really great, no pun intended, but you do a really great it's job. It's all right. Uh, Everyone try... makes the pun these days. It's fine. I'm used to it. I'm it's sure. It's been that going on totally since accidental. I've been like four or five. So <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> I believe it. As a new dad, I guess I just had to make a dad joke. It just kind of came naturally. But <laughs> either way, uh, you are a perfect example of just how much of a difference one person can make if they really want to dedicate themselves to something, Thank to you. some segment of this whole thing, of course. And, you know, you didn't go to journalism school. You just decided to do it. And that's a beautiful thing. I hope other people take that advice. But of course, the two volumes are, they're going to be out by the time this interview is out. But One Nation Under Blackmail, volume one and two, anyone who appreciates what you do and or appreciates what Chris Milligan does at Trine Day, publishing these incredible mm -hmm. books. I mean, now anyone listening can support both of you by picking these up. And I think that's great too. Happy to see you guys linked up, but what else would you add about getting the book and what's next for you before I cut you loose? All right. So um, I would really recommend if you want to support Chris, especially that you order, if you're in the continental U S you order through trying day directly by going to their website, tryingday.com. If you go there, you can order both the books as a bundle. It's significantly cheaper than buying both books separately. And you will get volume two before the official release date if you buy it that way. I actually think also if you buy both books separately on Trying Day, you also get volume two before the release date. Volume one is already out, actually. So that's probably the best way to do it. If you don't want to spend the money on two books, the ebook and audiobook, which should be coming out either next month or the subsequent month, are going to be volumes one and two together. So that's probably the most cost effective way. And if you're not in the continental U.S., we're working with a European printer and distributor to try and lower the cost because international shipping is quite high. And there are some retailers in the U.K. who have, it seems like they're carrying the book, like hive.co.uk seems to have it. But it's a little complicated because international shipping has gotten really expensive in the past, even just the past several months, but really over the past couple of years. I mean, it's obviously jumped a lot. So you know, if that's inconvenient for people, again, I, I would mention that there's going to be an, an audiobook and ebook and you can order through Amazon if you'd like or, you know, the bookseller of your choice. But you're going to get, you know, the books a little later than than most people, except for volume one, I guess, because, you know, it's already out. But volume two norm, uh, has a release date of October 22nd. And so if you order through Amazon, you won't get volume two until that day. But if you order through Trine Day, you'll get it in a couple days from now. Right on. Yes. Order from Trine Day, not from Jeff Bezos. I mean, come on, people. Be smarter than that. But hey, it's going to be out in every form just in time for Christmas. So don't sleep on it, people. And Whitney, this has been awesome. Thanks again for taking the time and keep up the great work. 
Thanks so much. Well, well, well. Clearly great to have one of the most respected and well-spoken independent journalists of a generation back for magic number three. How about it? No doubt she has amazing recall for her work and the relationships that she tracks within the Enterprise Network. She clearly has an aptitude for it, even though she didn't go to journalism school. Again, it just shows what a person with some motivation and dedication can do. Anyone can choose to master a subject, write about it, and speak out about it. Obviously, we do need action as well, and for some things, like food forest abundance, we have people like Jim Gale out there working on a practical solution. But there's a lot more education needed before we can overcome a lot of our challenges, and I'm glad Whitney has applied herself to that. Though the question does still remain, how do we get out of this when a captured government is unable to investigate itself? It's easy to say, just lock them up or wipe the slate clean and rebuild. But what does that even look like? It's obviously easier said than done, because when you really think it through, how many people would die in the chaos between going from point A to point B, even if we come out better on the other side? Although sometimes I do feel like it's the same old script generation after generation where young people think that they can and will change things only to give up in their 40s and just say that it's always going to be corrupt forever. And in people's 50s and 60s, they just vote for the lesser of two evils if they haven't just given up on even that. And then the next idealistic generation tries to highlight our issues until they lose steam, rinse, and repeat. But really, this World Economic Forum stuff and this UN Sustainable Development Goals stuff does sound a little different. It seems to me like it is an ambitious level jump into individualized control. The tech is finally catching up to their psychopathic dream scenarios, and it's concerning because how many people are ignorant of it or even cheering it on? The parallel society plan does seem like the best approach. We can't keep a bunch of idiots from following along, but we can network ourselves and make sure that when one of us gets kicked out of the mainstream, we have a pretty good stream of our own going with resources and support that softens the fall or in an ideal world even puts people in a better situation once they realize they don't need to be in that mainstream. What threat is it to get kicked out of a party when there's a better party happening outside? (laughs) And they are going for the money with people like Whitney and eventually myself, I'm sure. Alex Jones just got fined a billion dollars, if you believe that he's not still just playing a part. But it's so important that this work be supported. We also had this recent story with PayPal and their new policy to just take 2500 from people's accounts if it was determined that they spread misinformation. Thankfully, they did get a big counter-reaction and they backtracked, but I'm sure they'll keep pushing. And Patreon kicking off Whitney and James Corbett? I don't like that. You want to kick off someone like Owen Benjamin? I don't really care. The guy drops slurs all the time, so I understand a company not wanting to be involved in all that. To each their own, really. I'm not saying I endorse a deplatforming of Owen Benjamin. He's just an example. I'm totally neutral, but I use him as an example because I can't really argue against it when he makes it so difficult to want to do business with his content. But James and Whitney are just serious journalists who always maintain professionalism. 
To me, deplatforming either one of them is so much worse. The Higher Side Chats does have a Patreon, but it is a very small part of my business, and I encourage everyone to sign up through the website, but some people just won't do that. Now that it's been made clear that Patreon has gone over the line with some of our favorites, maybe more people will make that conversion. Because Patreon survives on taking a cut from their creators, so if you pay me on their platform, you are paying them too. I would love to see a Patreon competitor come along that plants the flag of free speech, but we don't really have that yet. Maybe Substack is close. I know Rockfin tries to get me to join once or twice a year, but I don't want to be paid in Rockfin coin. But I am glad that she's got the books out. I'm glad she published with Trine Day, and I hope it's a bestseller. My role is to highlight people who do good, interesting work and try to give them the best showing on the biggest platform that I can manage. It's not the most important link in the chain, but it's not nothing. So big thanks to Whitney. If you pick up her books from Trine Day, mention THC, and we can stay top of mind when new stuff from the best publisher of suppressed books comes out. That is always much more important to me than some iTunes review or any other thing, really. And I'm totally looking forward to her SDG series. Because despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. And if you want to hear the full two-hour interview today, become a Plus member. Or just get the seven-day free trial and drop me like a hot potato. There's nothing stopping you from doing that but your own ethics and tact. (laughs) In today's second hour, we got into the ass-backwards electric car plans of the Green Agenda. Controlling people's movement and putting an end to private car ownership. The fact that we are slaves of the convenience yoke. Separating fact from fiction when it comes to how the Carnegie's and World Economic Forum actually gamed out the Cyber Polygon event. Whitney getting removed from Patreon. That was in the second hour for people who were like, what are you talking about? Well, we talked about it there. We also got into COVID and lockdown policy in retrospect. Members of this enterprise network that are in the Biden administration, the Epstein Victoria's Secret pimp pipeline, how Leslie Wexner got brought into this network, and the World Economic Forum's young global leaders. We talked about Leslie Wexner's lifelong demon possession that he seems kind of proud of, as well as Leslie Wexner, the mega group, and Steven Spielberg, of all people. And then I asked Whitney her thoughts on if this enterprise network really has any competition or if they are the apex of the power pyramid, as well as a little speculation as to why Epstein might have been taken out. I thought that was interesting, but, you know, sign up if you want to, don't if you don't. TheHiresideChats.com And as for the latest and greatest meetups on the calendar at HiresideMeetups.com, on October 22nd, we have lunch with Des Moines Hireside Chatters at the Merrill Hay Mall Food Court in Des Moines, Iowa. Also on October 22nd, the second London THC drinks at the Lamb in downtown London. On October 23rd, a meetup in New York City Central Park. That should be fun. And then October 29th, the Philadelphia Clark Park meetup in Clark Park, Philadelphia. And that will get us through the month of October. 
Good times with open minds and feel free to make your own local event if you care to meet THC listeners that are in your area. But that is it. Another one bites the dust. Three shows in the can for October and two to go. I think this next one's going to be pretty popular too. It is quite wild and wild has been popular lately. So I will see you then. That is it for me. Big thanks again to Whitney. I wish her the best of luck with the new book. She has worked very hard. I checked Trine Day's website. It is available now. You get a discount for buying volume one and two together. And of course, digital and audio books are on the way. But take care of you and yours. I've done my part. Your move, enterprising elite operation underground operators and agents of the Blackmail Nation Network. Your fucking move. Get through the gate downtown, walking fast, security pass, and I'm homebound. But I got flagged, beaten and gagged, and my hands bowed. Now I'm screwed, I'm so screwed, but I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys, those documents. Bioweapon disease, so many coups, Bluebeam 2 and more conspiracies. I was close to the prize, but now these guys are wiping clean my precious memory. I'm so screwed, but I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys. Those documents would expose the lies, cause I know they've got a thousand files if I could just break through tonight.
If I could stall, get past these guys, those documents would expose the lies. Cause I know they've got a thousand files. If I could just break through, if I could just break through tonight. That is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check, mail to the P.O. Box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.